0: So pre-order The Sicilian Inheritance today. I promise you it's going to be your new favorite book. Hey guys, Joe here. This episode of Committed is brought to you by my brand new novel, The Sicilian Inheritance. This is honestly the best book that I've ever written. I love it so much. The Sicilian Inheritance is a twisty-turny family murder mystery set on the beautiful and sometimes dangerous island of Sicily. And it's incredibly personal. It's loosely based on the real-life murder of my great-great-grandmother, Lorenza Marsala. The Sicilian Inheritance comes out on April 2nd, but it is available for pre-order right now wherever you get your books. And if you pre-order and email me your receipt to joe.piazza at gmail.com or DM me at Instagram, I will give you a free lifetime subscription to our newsletter, Over the Influence. We'll be posting exclusive pictures, videos, and show transcripts for the very new season of Committed coming out in February. So pre-order The Sicilian Inheritance today. I promise you it's going to be your new favorite book. Committed is a production of iHeartRadio.
1: If it was just me, you know, and Garth... I mean, I'd met the love of my life at the age of 19. I'd lived in Paris. I've thrown dinner parties in foreign languages. Like, I've had a pretty cool life. Like, yeah, okay, if it was just me at 32, I would have been like, all right, I had a good run. It sucks, but nobody knows when they're gonna die. I could have accepted it, but the idea of leaving my two children, it never would sit with me that they wouldn't have a mom.
0: When Caroline Wright was told she had a fatal brain tumor, that she only had a year left to live. She started writing. She began to write for her two young boys and for her husband, Garth. She filled dozens of black and white marbled composition books. And in those notebooks, she wrote them a blueprint for what their lives might look like after she was gone.
1: Once I got my diagnosis, it became clear that these might be actually the last words that my kids read uh, of mine. For me, I was living this like very sweet life, putting it into these pages for my kids, and Garth just gave me the space to do that. I think there was a part of me that felt I could make permanent my mothering form. I was storing my love for them in a permanent and tangible space, and my body kind of became less... Relevant. And, you know, yes, it doesn't take away the thought of losing all of those years and all those experiences, but at least I was giving them the purest form of my love for them and my thoughts for them. And, you know, kind of storing the most positive and distilled version of myself. I never really focused on writing. Like that, that it became my creative everything. And I just took it really seriously that it was my job to find hope everywhere I could and continue to live.
0: I'm Joe Piazza. This is Committed.
1: Garth. We're sitting here together. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to start,
2: Garth? No, you can tell your version first.
1: Okay. Well, we did go to college in Paris, you know, straight out from high school. We went there for what would have been four years. We graduated in three, though. I don't. We don't know exactly why. My story is that I just, like, saw this super cute American boy from across the... We didn't have a quad, but it was, like, across the area. It was, like, in front of a church.
2: A courtyard. Yeah, a
1: courtyard. My dad and I were like doing a whole big day of apartment hunting and then I was with him. We were like about to register for class or something lame. And I saw this boy from across the courtyard and I was like, oh my God, is this what like college boys look like? This is so great. He struck me cause he's, you know, you can't see him now, which shame for you, but he is still the most handsome, looks like a movie star to me always. And uh, looks a lot like, uh, what's that actor? Uh, Josh Hartnett maybe crossed with like a little bit of Adam Driver very like cute and tall and dark hair blue eyes and I just was like struck by him and then you know a full year later we were hanging out on the Champs du Mars which is the big uh, park in front of the Eiffel Tower like it I think it was like 2 in the morning or something like that and I charmed him and he ended up missing his econ exam the next morning because of staying out late and smoking cigarettes with me. (laughs) So, that's my version of the story. I know his is different.
2: I don't remember, you know, we'll fast forward until like, you know, we're studying for finals and that's the, we were hanging out with Sean and Mars because uh, Caroline and most of our other group of friends were already done with their finals, but I still had my microeconomics final at 8 a.m. the next morning and uh, or I stayed out until yeah, I was like two or three and um, just hanging out and then uh, went home and I then began to study for my uh, <laughs> final. It didn't go well.
1: Yeah, we kept in touch over the summer and I think you asked me mm-hmm. about like a girl that you had gone on a date with or something, you know, you are like, oh, this is a cool girlfriend. I'll get the girl opinion on it or whatever. And I was like, oh, cool, I'm in the friend zone.
0: But then the next year, Garth's apartment got rented out. And he didn't have anywhere to live.
2: So I asked Caroline, hey, can I sleep on your couch for a few days until I find a place? She said yes, and then I never left.
1: He never left. <laughs> it was just always, always very um, deep and sweet, and, and as related to cr- sort of creating this life together. Um, we were always kind of old. <laughs> old and boring. <laughs> yeah.
0: At the end of college, Caroline went to culinary school outside of Paris. And when she was finished, she knew exactly what she wanted to do. She wanted to go to New York and get a job as a food editor. Garth, on the other hand.
2: I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I was like, all right, I'll do whatever. And I remember her telling me, Like I'm moving to New York City. Wasn't you know we're moving there or moving there together. It's like I'm moving there and you can join me if you want. And so uh, that's what I did.
1: Well, that was part (laughs) of the same conversation of like, I'm not saying you have to figure out what you want to do for the rest of your life, but you do have to figure Mm -hmm. out something to do so that you're doing something because I am not a person who like waffles, you know, like I know what I'm going to do, and even if it changes, I know that I'm always going to do something with 100% and, like, just accomplish things. I guess so that's, like, kind of why I colonized him, probably, is because, like, yeah, I just decide things, and luckily it worked out in our case.
2: Yeah, we were in New York City for a few years, finding our way... And uh, I was the worst waiter in New York for like two weeks.
1: (laughs) It's very true.
2: Caroline eventually got a job at Martha Stewart, and Mm -hmm. I got a job working as like a paralegal at a big law firm. And then we just sort of settled into life together and realized like this is who we want. Before I went to law school, we got married. We were incredibly poor when we first went to New York City. We could barely make enough money to pay rent much less eat or do anything else. As far as proposing, it wasn't really anything. It was just sort of a fait accompli. Like, we knew this was going to happen, and um, did, we did it.
1: He, he bought a ring and he proposed.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think it was New Year's. It, was not, it wasn't, like,
2: yeah, it was not particularly
1: f- romantic or
0: anything. Fancy,
2: yeah. Uh, it was just, let's do this.
0: And they did it. They got married. Garth went to law school, graduated law school, and started looking for a job in New York City.
2: And couldn't find one because it was so- Super horrible. It was a really bad Terrible economy. Terrible time. Yeah, <laughs> And uh, so I searched further afield field and found a really good uh, fit, but it was in Dallas, Texas.
0: At that point, Caroline was working as a TV producer and she was on the road all the time. So Dallas didn't seem like that huge a deal. She figured Garth could do what he needed to do in Texas, and she'd keep her job in New York. They'd do long distance for a while. They knew they wanted kids, but they were waiting. They were young, and they had all the time in the world. Then, on one trip to Dallas...
2: She was, you know, saying like, oh, I feel weird, and... uh...
1: I was like, well, hey, we should just, like, go to the store and, I don't know, get some condoms and maybe a pregnancy test.
0: Caroline had been training for a half marathon and that was a huge change for her body because she was usually a couch potato. So she'd been missing her periods and she was exhausted, but she blamed it all on the running.
1: And and then like, Turns out that I was fully knocked up and I went to a doctor like the very day that his insurance kicked in which, in New York. Which um, was
2: three months after.
1: Yeah, well, so I was, well so by that time they measured, you know, the little bean that was growing in there, which is the seed of our son Henry now. They measured him and he was three months along. Yeah, and on, I put the it la- yeah on the last
2: <laughs> day that her doctor went out of her fly. She finally left our apartment in Park Slope and moved to Dallas.
1: So yeah, that's how Henry came along. So no, we weren't like plotting um, to have children. We were definitely plotting to have children, but probably three years from then... Well, we
2: would have had children, we were thinking 32, 33, which is when you got sick.
1: This
0: is a bit of a fast forward here, but it's important. Caroline believes the universe was giving her the family she needed in the time she had left.
1: I don't believe in whatever, but just maybe it was just the universe's way of like, we, this is our family, our two kids. It's 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 everything. I honestly believe they saved my life. If we had waited until when we were planning on, we probably wouldn't have been able to have our second Theodore because I would have been already sick.
0: Time for a quick break. When we get back, we'll hear how Caroline and Garth found out about her brain tumor. So pre-order The Sicilian Inheritance today. I promise you it's going to be your new favorite book. So after Caroline had their first son, Henry, she and Garth were new parents living in Dallas. It was completely different from living in Brooklyn. Suddenly, she's this stay-at-home mom, freelancing and working on cookbooks, and she's in a city where there wasn't a huge freelancer-writer scene. It made her feel a little invisible.
1: I left my my friends and my work and, you know, was people would be like, so what does your husband do? And I was like, well, actually, yes, I did happen to move here for my husband, but I also do things of my own. So I was pretty unhappy there, if you can't tell.
0: Caroline begged Garth every day to find somewhere else to go she was desperate to get back to Brooklyn, but then she got pregnant with their second child, Theodore.
1: It was literally like Garth whispered in my ear and I got pregnant again. When that happened, I knew that we couldn't just like throw our one kid in a living room in New York City and like make life happen. It was like, oh, we had this legit family and we needed to like plan for that.
0: They started to brainstorm other cities Garth could get a job in. Seattle came up on the short list and Caroline was intrigued. She knew there was a vibrant food writing scene there.
1: We were very into the whole scene. So then with our small Henry um in tow, we went on like a baby moon to Seattle and all of the pieces really like gelled. It felt like these were our people and this was like a place I wanted to move by choice and like there were like gays here and there was like artists here and there's freelancers here and There's a really cool cookbook only store, which we happen to live like very close to now. And so we just sort of fell in love with that. Then immediately, actually, Garth kind of ended up getting a job opportunity a couple months later. And then so that's how I ended up having a moving van come to our house when I had a two day old baby and we didn't have an address to send the moving van to
0: like a lot of parents the two of them thought the transition to the second kid would be easy i thought the same thing and now i know differently now i know that every day with two small children is like fighting a war i'm never gonna win
1: it's real it's a real deal like zero to one is one thing which was like pretty easy for us because like i said we were old and boring but like from one to two, like exploded our lives and we had no idea. And I, we were just like in this like clusterfuck of crazy situation. And so um, that's how we moved to Seattle. Like I was on a plane with literally, I think, like a week old
0: baby. Was two weeks old. Flash forward to about six months later, December 2016. Caroline had just turned in her third cookbook to her editors. That's when she started having weird symptoms.
1: I thought they were panic attacks all the time. I'd, I'd never had a headache before in my life, so I didn't know, I was like, well, yeah, I guess this is why people get headaches. I'm like really stressed out and my life is stupid right now, I don't know. And we just moved into our house and you know, it was like the dark of winter and we were still getting used to that.
0: The doctor didn't think much of Caroline's symptoms.
1: She said, yeah, you know, it happens. People develop migraines. Like moms, of two, you have two kids, like your life is really crazy. So she gave me all these handouts of like where I stood on these like anxiety and depression scales. Circumstantially because of my life, like I, I definitely was like in the middle of both of those things. It was just too hard to determine and then she asked me, like, so you have pain? And she was, like, displaying on her own head where, like, a migraine would occur, like bands of pain in, like, the front indicating her forehead and the back. And I said, yeah, kind of, but also I've had really bad headaches in sort of the corner of my right eye. And then if I was honest with myself, I could also feel, like, this deep laziness in the back of my right eye. And she was like, yeah... It's probably nothing, it's probably just like sinus stuff, but we should maybe get an MRI just in case, cause that's like, that's not migraines.
0: It didn't feel urgent. It took about two weeks to get her insurance to approve the MRI. She remembers that when she was driving there, she felt disoriented, but she brushed that off. She was still new to town, it was easy to get lost. She finally made it there, got the MRI.
1: You know, they discovered this seven-centimeter brain tumor in my frontal lobe. I, I had not been thinking, like, brain tumor at all. Seven centimeters is like... It's a tennis ball. Yeah, it's a tennis ball. It, it's basically, like, squished... The, the headaches I was having was because my brain was being pushed over and had no place to move. But the crazy thing was is that the where the tumor was also was really distorting my um, motor cortex... The
0: neurologist looked at the MRIs, and they wanted the tumor to come out. But at that point, they still didn't think it was that serious. See, Caroline was still functioning, and she was functioning pretty well. At no point did they say cancer. They thought benign tumor of some sort. In fact, the doctors went so far as to tell Caroline to look at the American Brain Tumor website, but they said, stop, just stop at the first couple of tumors. They told her not to scroll down to the bottom because that's where the really bad tumors were.
1: Whether or not it was, quote unquote, like super dangerous or anything, they just knew they had to get it out. I feel really lucky in that case because it's not like I had a choice, you know. I was just told that you have to have surgery on Friday and that's what's going to happen. So, you know, I got to be all existential about it, but it just, it was necessary.
2: So you had surgery on that Friday and then the Friday. Friday week, Friday after that,
1: was that's how long it took to get the pathology back.
0: And that's when they knew. That's when they knew it wasn't a benign tumor.
1: They told me it was a glioblastoma, which is one of the most aggressive brain tumors out there. It was the one at the end of the list that doctor wouldn't let us look at because it was too scary. He gave me a year to live at that time. Those two pieces of information, not knowing how to process them and sitting there in that room with Garth and my mom, you know, who are taking notes and just, it was completely overwhelming.
0: Doctors have a nickname for this kind of tumor. They call it the Terminator.
1: That's its charming nickname. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. You definitely
2: don't want a doctor to use that in reference to your health. Yes.
1: <laughs>
0: Garth has an uncanny ability to compartmentalize and disassociate. Remember, he's a lawyer. So he was sitting there in the doctor's office with his legal pad and his pencil.
2: Just writing notes, hearing what they're saying, and getting it on paper without necessarily processing at the time. The surgeon was very quick with us. He was just saying, okay, enough chit-chat, here's the prognosis, year to live, any questions?
1: It was very bullet points.
2: Yeah. We were just sort of stunned. There wasn't any processing, at least for me. It was just stunned silence because nobody was expecting it.
0: Time for a quick break. Be right back. Hey, guys. Joe here. This episode of Committed is brought to you by my brand new novel, The Sicilian Inheritance. This is honestly the best book that I've ever written. I love it so much. The Sicilian Inheritance is a twisty-turny family murder mystery set on the beautiful and sometimes dangerous island of Sicily. And it's incredibly personal. It's loosely based on the real-life murder of my great-great-grandmother, Lorenza Marsala. So pre-order The Sicilian Inheritance today. I promise you it's going to be your new favorite book. Caroline and Garth were stunned by Caroline's diagnosis. What they thought were just headaches somehow turned into, you only have a year left to live. What the hell do you do with that?
1: And my way is like obviously I do things, like I I fix things, I make things, I just am a person of action. So for me, having this diagnosis that I couldn't do anything necessarily about, it was so hard to process. And so on the way home, I decided a few things, like really immediately, I decided to walk away from my third book that I had handed in. And I decided to change the way that I eat entirely and I didn't know if that was going to help anything but um, I just was following these hunches and then I also wanted to basically just like unplug from absolutely everything I made Garth go home and get me a landline which is like fyi it's like actually very hard to do nowadays (laughs) Yeah, I basically just stepped back from everything in my life and I started doing yoga, what I like lovingly referred to as like old lady yoga. I just was like breathing deeply and eating gently and like really becoming attuned to why my body had to scream at me to get my attention. It occurred to me that I was 32 at the time. Like, why did I get this cancer like 30 years younger than the typical person. What about my body gave my brain permission to grow this cancer? And not that I think that I deserved it or I caused it. I really don't. That's not where that's coming from. But it's just like objectively other people have cancer cells in their body and they don't grow these crazy tumors.
2: We immediately were given names of doctors and told like, okay, we're going to report on this date for a radiation schedule.
1: You're just kind of like set on a track of what to do next. Um, So I knew that I had a month of rest for my brain to essentially squish back to its prior location. And I had all these like physical therapy things that I had to do. And during
2: that time, you're you're worried about, well, they tell you what's probably gonna happen is the tumor is gonna grow back. When you come back in, in a month, That's what we're going to address. We're going to take another MRI and we'll address that. So Caroline's at home for that month and we're just all...
1: Totally freaked out.
2: Yeah, just trying to figure out everything that's going to happen. You know, I was reading up on trying to get as much information, reading studies.
1: Garth, you know, while he was doing research behind closed doors, I was telling him like, please and thank you, do all that research, but don't tell me any of it because I really, I know what the research says. I know it says it's like absolutely, I'm going to die. And I can hold that. But I also need to help build hope for myself. And I can't do that while staring down facts. I just had to like go by how my body was feeling that day and like listen and rest when it needed to and eat what it needed to and breathe well, you know, so it was very instinct based.
0: And that's when Caroline started writing, not writing cookbooks. She took a break from that for the first time writing about her life and writing for her kids. She got a ton of those black and white marbled composition books, the kinds people used to take notes in in middle school.
1: Once I got my diagnosis, it became clear that these might be actually the last words that my kids read of mine. You know, I really took a great effort to like mine all of the thoughts that I was having and anticipate questions that they might have when they were grown and I was probably gone, things that they wanted to know. And I wanted them to know what their mom did, the shape of my fighting, so that they wouldn't have any questions about, did I do everything I could? And the answer was, is I like, I turned over every rock that I could to find some sort of answer. And I followed every hunch, every thought I had and did everything I could. And then I wrote it all down. (laughs) And actually the act of writing it was the first experience of my life where I, I was physically incapable of cooking. Obviously, I was healing from a traumatic brain injury. People were cooking for me, neighbors and friends and family. Everyone brought us soup. It was like really magical. We had this cooler outside and people it would just like fill up with soup from strangers. And, you know, I would let people cook for me while I just wrote. And I never really focused on writing like that. that it became my creative everything. And I just took it really seriously that it was my job to find hope everywhere I could and continue to live.
0: Caroline says she would have had an easier time accepting her diagnosis if it weren't for her boys. If it weren't for them, she was ready to accept that she'd lived a good life, that she'd already had one of the best possible times on this planet.
1: If it was just me, you know, and Garth, I mean, I'd met the love of my life at the age of 19. I'd lived in Paris. I've thrown dinner parties in foreign languages. Like, I've had a pretty cool life at 32, and I'm, you know, privileged. I've I've never really wanted for anything. This is not bragging. I'm just saying, like, yeah, okay, if it was just me at 32, I would have been like, all right, I had a good run. It sucks, but nobody knows when they're going to die, and, you know... I could have accepted it, but the idea of leaving my two children, who I love to the ends of the earth, it never would sit with me that they wouldn't have a mom. So that, that's just was it.
0: Caroline was writing for Garth and her boys. She was writing to try to find a way to keep her voice alive for them after she passed away.
1: I think there was a part of me that felt I could make permanent my mothering form by writing things down. I was storing my love for them in a permanent and tangible space and my body kind of became less relevant. I don't know if that's... It, it's a, I really believed that, though, at the time. And, you know, yes, it doesn't take away the pain of the thought of losing all of those years and all those experiences, but at least I was giving them the purest form that I could of my love for them and my thoughts for them and kind of storing the most positive and distilled version of myself. And that was very important at the time where, you know, the focus is obviously like this tragic, weak thing that was happening to this strong person. It's very distracting, it seems very, very sad, but for me, I was living this like very sweet life putting it into these pages for my kids. And I wanted to imagine for them this world in which, you know, they could think about me and their mom and and hold me in a real space as opposed to being afraid of thinking of their mother and not knowing who she was or not knowing where they came from as a part of her. Um, but writing just became this ritual, this like hopeful landscape that was sort of just Distanced from the craziness of being a patient. I wasn't a weak cancer patient when I sat down to write.
0: Garth's boss at the time gave him a lot of flexibility. So he had the time that he needed to figure out how to be a support system for Caroline, how to be a support as she figured out a new way to live with this fatal diagnosis. And their goal as the parents of small children was to limit the disruption to the kids' schedules as much as possible
2: get Henry to his preschool keep Theodore busy during the day. Caroline's dad was over to help uh, you know if there needed to be cooking or just another caregiver if I had work that I couldn't push off at a you know meeting or something it was it's such a tired trip but it really the community that we had is what took over basically 10 people became one to support Caroline
1: but what Garth is downplaying, is that he really was like this incredible caregiver because Theodore was still, not he wasn't a babe in arms, but he was probably about a year, which is still very much like this physical being. And so I couldn't really provide that. So Garth was not only battling, I'm sure the very real thoughts that he was going to be a single father while also kind of acting like a single father because I was, you know, sort of incapacitated and also very selfish. It was my job to like, If I needed to take a walk around the block, I needed to go do that. If I needed to go to yoga, I went to yoga two times a week. I wrote and all I was doing is like spending money on things that like maybe could or could not help me like homeopathy and all these things. So I was terrifying my poor, pragmatic husband while he was also just supporting me to the end of the earth. And it was amazing.
2: I mean, Henry had his school and so he truly... I don't think, felt a blip. Theodore, who was about 18 months old at the time, was um, definitely looking back on retrospect, he was going through some things, dealing with the complete detachment and Caroline just sort of lifting out of his life at that time. And so he and I, I think, were up every three hours or so, like every single night for almost a year, because he was coming out of his bed, and at the beginning he was crawling out of his crib, and took him forever to get back to sleep, and so I mean I was actually sort of helped by that because I had a very specific job to do overnight, and then I just sort of made it through. I don't know how I got through. You just you just do, you just make it through.
1: When I was in treatment, and we were first telling Henry, because he was really the only one who was conscious of what was going on at the time, I remember this really clearly, and my answer I don't think has changed which is, you know, mommy, if you die, what happens? Like, who's going to take care of me? And my answer was, well, Henry, the same thing is going to happen whether I live or die. You're going to be raised by a large network of people who love you. You know, we just like listed people. And that still feels true, you know.
0: It was sad. Of course it was sad. But those times also offered them a new kind of clarity.
2: Kelly may disagree, but I think we're lucky... That we had this experience because it gave us such a clear perspective on what's important and what's not Uh, in our lives and with each other and alone and then with the kids just what needs to be focused on and what truly can fall away or fade to the background and um you know we're still annoyed at each other's idiosyncrasies but we don't fight about them and um We're better friends for having gone through it.
1: Garth and I are so different. I mean, really, we used to joke that we're like one person that's been split into two. But what's funny is because like if 20 year old Caroline hadn't met Garth, I probably would have ended up with some like, you know, artist type or whatever, who is probably more like me. But I've thought about this so much because I think that it was always meant to be that I married Garth because Garth is the best dad. He's the best dad. He's the best person to be my better half because I'm crazy, flaky, disorganized. I'm all those things because I'm like doing too many things at once. I'm like creating things all the time. And Garth is holding everything down. He does a beautiful job. And he did that certainly when I was sick. But that's not something that I really appreciated in my 20s. I was like, come on, have another drink. Come on, let's go out. So we've had hard times, but I really do think that that's why, that's why we're together is that I needed someone to help me through this, through my cancer. But like parenting is very, very, is not similar to cancer. <laughs> it, is, it is similar to just like needing to stay organized. Like kids go to bed at seven thirty, and like we go to bed at nine and he takes care of me in ways that I'm not capable of taking care of myself. And, um, you know, I can do all of those squishy things, you know, I can, in this case, with cancer can do incredible things like create hope when I'm told that I don't have but a year to live. Like I just stick my fingers in my ears and say la la, la 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 and just like keep living my life. And because I'm living, people tell me how great that is. And that's so weird. But Garth is like always very aware of of all of the underpinnings of everything. Yeah, I'm I am grateful for my cancer for that. And and do I think that I could have managed to get there at some point. Probably, but it certainly, like, happened faster and more more articulated way uh, or, like, overt way um, because of my cancer. So, yeah, I, I'm very grateful to it and to Garth. If I had been doing it on my own or, like, we've had fights in the past where we almost split up and stuff, and I think about that, like, what would my, like, what would my decisions have been, If I was alone or if I was with someone who was more like me, who like I was also freaking out and like totally overwhelmed. And, you know, it took the counterpoint to really survive this, I think.
0: been three years since Caroline was diagnosed with the Terminator of brain tumors.
1: I'm still alive. Yes, it's very exciting. Um, it's a very weird life when people just congratulate you on being alive, but that's where I am right now. So yeah, the bar is very, very low uh, when you are three years out from a cancer no one expected you to survive. So that's where we are now. I am, I'm living. Uh, so I'm three years out from my one year prognosis and nobody really knows why. I'm called a miracle casually sort of by my doctors and which is like a very weird place to be and they're all very serious. When I was sick, I lived fully in these like two different narratives, like the one in which I certainly died and the one in which I certainly lived and I held them both in my pockets. Whatever I did, I consulted both simultaneously and now the one in which I certainly die is put in my back pocket because, you know, unfortunately, there is definitely this narrative about how I'm surviving now, and that's becoming its own thing.
2: When you're in it, you really want there to be certainty, but there's no certainty with cancer. So as always, right, the focus is on you know being parents and growing up and seeing them grow up.
1: I hope to be here for it, and I definitely do think that there's a value-added experience of having a mother around, and I'm very passionate and there for them, like, you know, watching Theodore put on a dress and twirl around the living room and stuff like that. There are things that their joys of being a parent that I would just, like, hate to miss, and I would hate their joys of having a mother, I'm sure, that they, w- I would hate for them to miss, but realistically, we've created a life for them that... They have great, great sources of love, including mine, even if I die through the books that I've written for them. And I'm just really grateful to be able to be here.
2: We're grateful to have you.
3: This episode was hosted and reported by Joe Piazza. With special thanks to Caroline and Garth Wright. You can learn more about Caroline and her family by visiting www.carolinewrightbooks.com. That's www.carolinewrightbooks.com. Her books are also available on Amazon or wherever books are sold. It was produced, edited, and mixed by Ramsey Yunt. Live sound recording provided by Alice O'Neill. The executive producers are Joe Piazza and Tyler Kling. Theme song by Tristan McNeil. For comments, suggestions, or to be part of the show, give us a call at four zero four nine nine six one one seven three. That's four zero four nine nine six one one seven three. Or send us an email at Joe at Committed dot com. That's JO at Committed dot com. You can grab a copy of Joe's book, How to Be Married, on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Committed is a production of iHeart Radio and produced in our studios located in Atlanta, Georgia.